The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Tonight's show is about some of the most famous names in Union military leadership, Grant, Sherman, McClellan, Fremont. But it's not about generals. Julia Grant, Ellen Sherman, Nellie McClellan, and Jesse Fremont played roles in the history of the Civil War through their interactions with their husbands, roles that have been noticed in passing by historians, but never explored in detail until now. In the book, Lincoln's General's Wives, Four Women Who Influenced the Civil War, For Better and For Worse, the author is Candace Hooper, and we'll talk with her tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you live as always Tonight from Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters in the Field, stationed this evening in Asheville, North Carolina, but not speaking for the city of Asheville or for East Carolina University, where the show normally originates, or anyone else, just for myself, and I know our guest will do the same. I'm here because I'm en route to the Society of Civil War Historians meeting conference in Chattanooga, Tennessee tomorrow, and stopping here about two-thirds of the way there. I'll visit my daughter Caroline while I'm in town and continue on tomorrow. 
But this means uh, tonight's show is the first and only one to be broadcast from the Country Inn and Suites, in one of them at least, in Asheville. And we're using new technology. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago that I bought a new computer, and instead of buying a fancy Microsoft Surface, which I thought about using, but then the idea of putting all my stuff on one expensive tablet seemed dangerous. So I bought a desktop and a Walmart tablet, which is what we're using tonight, uh, for about one-tenth the price of the Microsoft version. If the show goes bad at any point technologically, it's not the fault of your receiver or of Voice America. It's probably at this end. We'll get it straightened out as soon as we can in, in the unlikely event that happens. Well, this is so... so I'm on the wave to another uh, stop, but just back uh, the past week from the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, uh, this hallowed ground tour of Civil War sites. I've been mentioning that for the last month or so, really looking forward to it, and it did not disappoint. It was a really outstanding trip. I want to take this moment to thank all the uh, people in public history who work at the sites. Uh, we met some great guides, Doug Bowden, our licensed battlefield guide at Gettysburg, Megan McNish, a seasonal ranger at Chancellorsville who just graduated from Gettysburg College and is working at a Civil War site. It's good to see people uh, starting their careers in the field. Uh, I got to talk with Chris Bingham at Appomattox. He's a graduate uh, master's degree holder from East Carolina University and he's moving in the ranks up to the uh, permanent position there hopefully soon. So it was a, a it was good to see those people and the trip itself was uh, really a delight. Matt Brogge of Stephen Amherst Historical Tours was the uh, the on-site organizer, kept everything going. We had a new bus driver this year, Nisi Jones, who was just outstanding. Everyone on the trip, I'm sure, would join me in, in saying she really made it pleasurable. Plus, I have never been on a full-size coach that, when stuck behind a really slow driver on a two-lane country road in southwestern Virginia, passed the driver. Uh, there was plenty of room you could see forever, but uh, to, to be on a big bus that pulls out and passes a slowpoke, uh, we were just cheering. That was great. Anyway, it was it, it was a great trip. Uh, all the travelers were great. Uh, uh, Derek and Graham from Buckinghamshire, uh, England, the Hagens from Belfast, both, uh, all, all of them brought international perspectives to it. Uh, the Carpenters, original and new improved version, two of them uh, brought the, the Dixie perspective from Alabama. We had a lot of West Coast people from California, Oregon, Washington. We had people with Civil War ancestors from Minnesota and Georgia. Uh, there were veterans, Stephen Ambrose travelers, who'd been on a lot of uh, trips with that company, and those who were traveling for the first time. Uh, there were some Civil War talk radio listeners, and shockingly, some people who had not yet heard of the show, but I, I fixed that. It was really an interesting group of people, wide range of interests and perspectives, uh, fascinating conversations, and uh, I highly recommend you look into going next year if you haven't gone on one of these. It's a, a great experience. The sites themselves were great, no matter how many times one goes, it doesn't get old to visit these battlefields. Uh, this year we added some new ones, Petersburg, including the crater, was added for the first time and that was uh, an impressive site. At Gettysburg, if you haven't been there recently, uh, 
you, know, you probably noticed from seeing online that they, Civil War Trust obtained the motel along the uh, the Chambersburg Pike near Lee's headquarters. I think it was called the General Lee Motel. Uh, they they obtained that property, tore down the motel, tore down everything there that wasn't there in 1863, and we approached it for the first time coming out of the town of Gettysburg, uh, heading northwest up Chambersburg Pike, and as we crested the ridge, and where for forever there had been all this development, suddenly you could see across the field, just like you were John Buford, it, it took my breath away to see how much uh, progress had been made there. So always good to see these places whether you've seen them once or a hundred times. Well, this week's travels, off to Chattanooga uh, tomorrow for the Society of Civil War Historians Conference and an opportunity to talk with colleagues in the field and line them up for the next season of Civil War Talk Radio. We've got three more shows in this year's season. Next week, Bridget Ford, author of Bonds of Union, Religion, Race, and Politics in the Civil War Borderland, will be the guest. On June 15th, it's Mark Bielski, who has a new book, Sons of the White Eagle. It's about Polish officers who fought on both sides of the war. Uh, Mark uh, earned his doctorate recently, but has worked in public history a long time, works with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, uh, essentially runs the place, so uh, I have to be nice to him, so he'll hire me back for another tour, but that will be easy because he's a, a good historian. And then on June 22nd, Christopher Lyle McElwain Sr. with a book on Civil War Alabama. So three interesting topics to finish out the year. Some have already been set up for uh, next academic year starting in September. And hopefully I'll get a whole bunch more over the next few days and tell you about those. You can always find out about them from impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War support auxiliary website. You can buy books there that you hear about on the show, click through, and that supports the website. You can donate to Civil War Talk Radio. When you go there, click on the PayPal button. Even if you don't have a PayPal account, somehow it magically knows where your money is and just takes it out of the atmosphere and sends it to me uh, in whatever quantity you specify. And it need not be large, always uh, interested uh, a small donation is, is a worthwhile donation. It does help purchase the books. I brought home a big box of books from this past trip uh, from all the uh, battlefield uh, shops and, and bookstores that we passed along the way. And your donations help make that possible and then in turn lead to more shows for Civil War Talk Radio. It's a big circle. It's not tax deductible. Don't forget that. Uh, it's, it's just for the benefit of the show. We're not a 501c3, so you cannot claim it, but do, do feel free to contribute. So all that going on, tonight we turn to the wives of four of Abraham Lincoln's generals, Fremont, McClellan, Sherman, and Grant. The author, uh, first time author, I believe, is Candace Hooper, and she joins us now. Ms. Hooper, are you there? I am. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, and I'll be looking forward to seeing you in Chattanooga. That's where I am right now, uh, ahead of the Society of Civil War Historians meeting. It, I, I wondered if you're going to be there. Are you at the, the main conference hotel? Or, yes. Uh, okay, I, I signed up too late. I'm going to be down the block 
and then with the various second-class uh, citizen historians at some other place. But I'm looking forward to going there and meeting you in person and uh, others. Since, since we'll officially be introduced tomorrow, uh, please call me Jerry today. Did, do you go by uh, Candace? Uh, is that uh, acceptable? I, I've been going by Candy um, since I was a little girl. And uh, when I turned 50, I tried to uh, have people call me Candace, but it just didn't seem right by then. So Candy is fine. Oh, God, it, it, I know how that is, so you, you can't... You can't change it once once you're beyond a certain point. Uh, the so uh, in your acknowledgments, you mentioned that you got a master's degree in 2008 and starting a second career as a historian. What was your first career, and why make the change? My first career was actually on Capitol Hill. I um, began by working for some Texas congressmen, including the late Charlie Wilson, who was the subject of that movie, Charlie Wilson's War. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was a great boss, and he had been a naval gunnery officer. Uh, we talked a lot about military history. Uh, and then I went on to become a lobbyist, and I spent a lot of time as a lobbyist uh, doing various things. Um, as it turns out, that was very helpful to me in writing this book, because these women were lobbying the President of the United States, in fact. Um, but uh, then I went on to, uh, in that career as a lobbyist, um, time passed, and one day I bought Rick Atkinson's book, uh, An Army at Dawn, when it first came out, mm-hmm. read it, because I, I didn't know much about the war in North Africa and World War II, and when I went to put it back in my bookcases, I couldn't, it wouldn't fit. So I thought, well, I need to organize all my books. And I started pulling my books from everywhere in the house and putting them into piles by subject. And it was a eureka moment. I had so much about military history, um, so many biographies of generals and statesmen, so much history. And I said, well, this is, this is what I must be interested in. And that's when I began to look at possible programs, and I ended up at George Washington University, which has a great um, history program and some great uh, military history professors. Well, that is a, a good good story. The uh, Interesting how things tie together. I, I met Rick Atkinson uh, last month. He was the graduation speaker at East Carolina. He was a 1974 alum, and uh, so I started reading his books so I could you know, talk intelligently with him. And I, I, I read uh, The Long Gray Line first, and I'm still reading Army at Dawn when I'm not reading Civil War uh, right now. And it's easy to get inspired by really good writers uh, who, who make these things come alive. So was the Civil War primary among these military history interests of yours or one of many? My primary interest was actually the Spanish-American War, and that was for a lot of reasons. Hmm. I was born on Guam, which was sort of swept up uh, as, as uh, they moved toward the Philippines, um, and I did a lot of work in lobbying regarding normalizing relations with Cuba, and also my great-grandfather served as part of the occupying forces in that war in Cuba, and I remember 
that old gentleman. So that was my real interest, and that's what I did my thesis on. But when you live in Washington, as I had been doing since 1973, mm-hmm. um, the Civil War is contagious. It will get you eventually. And uh, uh, I had begun to be interested in it. I think the first battlefield tour I ever took was of Gettysburg, where you just were. And it was mm-hmm. with um, Ed Bars. And uh. um, there is nobody like him for uh, just waking in you an interest in something that you may not even have thought you were interested in. Well, that's absolutely true. There, there is nobody like, like Ed Bars, certainly. And, uh, a wonderful person to, to go around the battlefield with. Well, this interest that you acquired has led to a book that is different uh, from any other uh, about the Civil War in, in many ways. And I want to ask you a lot of questions about it, but we're going to take a short break first. We'll come back in just a moment. We're talking tonight with Candace Hooper, author of Lincoln's General's Wives, Four Women Who Influenced the Civil War, For Better and for Worse. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Candace Hooper, author of Lincoln's General's Wives, Four Women Who Influenced the Civil War, For Better and For Worse. Talked a little bit in our first segment about uh, the author's career from Washington uh, lobbyist to historian and author. Uh, 
Candy, the first question that occurs in looking at a book like this is why uh, why these four particular figures out of the various uh, women you might have chosen to write about, uh, the wives of Fremont, McClellan, Sherman, and Grant? Well, and, and that is the best place to start with it. Um, I had known from reading years before about Jesse Fremont's trip to uh, lobby President Lincoln uh, for her husband's emancipation order. And when I went back to graduate school in one of the papers I did on William Tecumseh Sherman, I learned that his wife had gone to Washington and met with Lincoln to try to try to get some help from the president for uh, Sherman's situation in late 1861. So I began to wonder, you know, did, did a lot of women go to see Lincoln uh, and, and did a lot of military wives? It turns out actually that there, there are a number of them who went. But when I began to try to focus on what I would do with this book, I went back to the generals and I said, well, okay, let's look at this. Let's try to find a general whose career also mimicked the same trajectory as, as Fremont and see what his wife's influence was. And, of course, Fremont and McClellan were two of Lincoln's very first major generals appointed in May of 1861. So they pretty much began the Civil War at the top of the pecking order. By the end of 1862, neither one of them uh, had an active command. They had both been relieved of duty. I looked at Sherman and tried to find another um, similar trajectory, and that became Grant, because at the beginning of the war, they were both colonels. By the end of the war, of course, they were, well, Grant was lieutenant general, but, um, but they rose steadily through the war, uh, bumps along the way. And so I wanted to find out, all right, now, what was Julia's influence? Did Julia, how did Julia interact with, with Lincoln, if she did? How did Nellie McClellan interact with Lincoln or her opinion? And so that's how I ended up with these four characters, uh, four, four couples that I followed. And, so, and did you find that the, the behavior, the, the activities of the wives of the generals was significant in the trajectories of their careers? I believe they were. I believe that although Jesse Fremont and Nellie McClellan's uh, activities and, and, and personalities were very different, I believe that they both had a negative effect on their husband's military careers. Jesse, because she was so... Uh, aggressive in promoting her husband and in promoting what she thought was right. Um, and Nellie, because she pretty much just echoed everything that McClellan said and egged him on in his disdain for Lincoln and Stanton and Seward. Um, and while obviously the generals had their own issues and their own problems and are primarily responsible for their careers, it was clear that their wives encouraged the worst in them, in my opinion. 
When you look at the other two couples, it's a different story. Well, let's stay on those first two. Uh, okay. The, the bad stories are always more fascinating than the good stories in some ways. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, that's why I thought the four words would would uh, be important in the title. Yes, for for better or for worse, or that, and that comes clear as you read the book. You, you, the the title then becomes uh, very meaningful. Uh, Jesse Fremont is a remarkable woman. Uh, that both both she and Mrs. McClellan come from families of, of some authority, but, but really none more than uh, more than, than Jessie Fremont. Talk a little bit about her background. Well, she was, she, she was an amazing woman, and she was raised by her father, Thomas Hart Benton, who was one of the first senators from Missouri, and who was a man of such towering intellect and integrity that two presidents wrote about him. Theodore Roosevelt wrote a biography of him, and John Kennedy included him in his Profiles in Courage. Um, he raised Jesse like a man. He educated her like a man. She knew several languages, spoke several languages. She was well-versed in politics. Um, and it was uh, the wrong time in our country for her to have that kind of education and to also have the same kind of stubborn stubbornness that she inherited from her father. Because, of course, in the Victorian era, women were not supposed to um, have strong opinions. They weren't supposed to play in politics. Um, They were supposed to, if anything, work behind the scenes. And so she was was a frustrated... um, She had frustrated ambitions, which she uh, fed into... John Charles Fremont when she met him. She obviously fell in love with him. I mean, she was deeply in love with him all of his life. But he was also um, her opportunity to uh, play in the political world, and both in the political and military world, because she ended up acting as Fremont, pretty much as Fremont's chief of staff, both when he was in command of the Western Military Department in St. Louis, and then later in Wheeling, um, Virginia, later West Virginia, um, when he had his, his last turn at command. But what I found, she, she has come down in history. If you read Lincoln biographers, they don't like her at all. If you read her biographers, she does nothing wrong. Um, but I tried to look at her through my own lens, which was as a, as a person who had been working um, in politics in Washington, meeting with some of the very top people um, in, in the government. And it just seemed to me, um, I, I concluded that she would not have been a very good lobbyist. Um, she, she had the right uh, instincts or the right, the right principles. She was very anti-slavery. She was very pro-union. But she didn't know how to get those messages across in a way that would be um, attractive and acceptable to the people she was trying to deal with. Well, her most famous encounter is the one with Lincoln when she comes to uh, to Washington, September 1861, and Lincoln has ordered her husband to retract his, or asked the husband to retract his emancipation order in Missouri. 
and she she shows up after two days of travel and says, I'd like to meet with you as soon as possible, and he sends back a note now at once, and she shows up in the White House in the evening, and in in her account, uh, Lincoln is, is rude and doesn't offer her a seat and speaks quite sharply. Uh, is that how that meeting went down? Well, I think you really need to look at both sides of it, and I and and I think at least in one respect, um, I've never seen an account. Everybody talks about her two-day trip, hot and dusty, arriving late in the evening, going to Willard's Hotel, sending this note, but then inexplicably saying, "I need to meet you with you right away," but then inexplicably later saying, "I was planning to go to bed when the note came back." Now. Um, but nobody looks at what Lincoln was doing during that time. I mean, here is the man who is the president of the United States in the middle of a civil war. And if you look at his schedule for that day, which you can do, you can see that from the beginning of the day, he is going, going, going. It's September 11th. It's 80 degrees, 80% humidity. He is reviewing troops up uh, in the area that's now Bethesda. He's going across into the Virginia to, to some of the camps near Arlington, where I live. Um, he's uh, meeting at the Navy Yard. He's seeing all of these office seekers coming into his office. And by 8 o'clock, when her notice dated that she sent him, you would expect he might be pretty tired, she might be pretty tired. Maybe it wasn't the smartest thing for her to ask for a meeting right away. Maybe she should have asked for one the next morning. Um, But in any event, uh, she approached Lincoln as an equal. Um, She felt that she had as much uh, knowledge, education, uh, and political savvy as he did, and she wanted to Blame to him why her husband's emancipation order ought to be stayed, even though by that time there were um, soldiers in Missouri that were laying down their arms because of the emancipation order. At that point in late 1861, they had not signed up to free slaves. They had only signed up to save the Union. And so the meeting... If she presented herself as an equal, my sense is that Lincoln treated her as an equal and treated her as if she were a man coming with the same argument and, um, and, and telling her that, that he had taken them into account, but that, that was not how he wanted this to play out, and he insisted that her husband revoke his order. The, and remember, from, remember too. Uh, I mean, yeah. we all we might remember that that Lincoln had been nominated as as Fremont's uh, had been put his name had been put into nomination as vice president in 1856 when Fremont was the first Republican Party's presidential candidate, and so and he had he had campaigned for Fremont, so he wasn't mm-hmm. inherently opposed to Fremont. But he was not happy with how they had um, dealt with him um, once they got the command in St. Louis. Now, I mean, Fremont does not emerge well from from uh, this this account. Uh, certainly, his even his pathfinding expeditions 
uh, a really one series of, of bad decision after another. And one comes away thinking that Jesse Fremont really deserved a, a better partner in her uh, quest for power in the 19th century than, than John Charles Fremont. But uh, these things work out as they do, I suppose. Uh, let me ask about... I mean, there are so many interesting stories about all, all four of these women and their husbands that you present here. Uh, McC- Mrs. McClellan, uh, Nellie McClellan, equally uh, is, a, is a real contrast to Jesse Fremont in that she's not an active campaigner. Uh, she does not try to move out of the women's sphere, as historians call it now. Uh, indeed, she didn't, she didn't seem to really lift a finger during the war, and she didn't write very much, or at least we don't have her letters. Uh, you point out that I think there were maybe fewer than half a dozen letters uh, from the war that survived that she wrote. So how do we even know anything about Mrs. McClellan? Well, this is, this is something that we're, we're losing now uh, in, in history. Uh, we're losing written letters. When, uh, when the McClellans married, on the day of their marriage, McClellan... Uh, extracted from Nellie the promise that they would write to each other every day they were apart. At that time, he didn't know if he was going off to war. There was no war. Um, but, but they did. They wrote each other every day that they were apart, and they were apart quite a bit. And what you learn, you're right, only five of her letters and three telegrams from the war mm-hmm. period have survived. But when you're writing to somebody every day, as McClellan was writing to his wife and as she was writing to him, you are responding to things in the other person's letter, in your letter, as you write. Mm -hmm. And it became clear to me that while everybody had read this correspondence to find out what McClellan was doing in the war or saying about Lincoln or Stanton, Nobody really looked at what he was saying about his wife or to his wife in the context of her activities and, um, and her uh, sense of the war. And yet there's enormous amount of information there. It became very clear that um, she not only echoed every uh, uh, slur that he uh, wrote against Lincoln, Seward, and Stanton, um, and later Halleck, uh, and Halleck, but she egged him on in those. He would quote from some of her letters, or he would even, you know, say, well, you know, you were, you were, you were really right about Stanton. I sort of thought he was an okay guy, but you were really right. He was, he's really not, um, not a very good man. In fact, he's a Judas. Um, and so, there has been no biography of Nellie McClellan because there's so little written record of her. And so what I've got in my book is, is the most extensive biography of her, but it's constructed from um, pieces of evidence, not only from, from her husband's letters, but from her parents' letters, from other people's letters. Um, from Elizabeth Blair Lee's correspondence with her husband, where she would talk about uh, Mrs. McClellan, and from Kate Chase, um, Sam and Chase's daughter's um, letters and diaries. Uh, 
uh, where they would talk about her. And she comes across as somebody who is pretty much detached from her husband's career during the war. Now, that's a remarkable thing. She, she's devoted to him and agrees with his opinions and, and exaggerates them and, and feeds them back. But she doesn't actually do much. She doesn't, uh, she resists all kinds of requests to participate in the sanitary commission activities. She doesn't visit the soldiers or the hospitals the way other wives do, the way Mary Lincoln did on occasion. Uh, she really is, is oddly detached. Uh, with that thought, let's, we'll stop here and take another short break, come back and find out more about uh, Nellie McClellan and also uh, a little bit about the wives of Generals Sherman and Grant. Won't spoil the whole book because you'll want uh, listeners to get a copy of this. It's very interesting. The book is Lincoln's General's Wives, Four Women Who Influenced the Civil War for Better and for Worse. The author is Candace Hooper. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Candace Hooper, author of Lincoln's General's Wives, Four Women Who Influenced the Civil War, For Better and For Worse, Candy, we talked about first names, and since your book says Candace on the cover, we want people to recognize it in the stores. Uh, mine say Gerald and not Jerry, and then people say, who is that guy? Uh, but about the book, uh, which, which I did find really interesting, in some ways I thought it was a combination of a very uh, forward-looking topic and a very... Uh, old-fashioned approach, in a sense, and by that I mean, uh, 
in, in writing about women in the Civil War era, uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Lisa Frank Tendridge was, Lisa Tendridge Frank, pardon me, was, was on, on the show. She has a book on uh, civilian women in the South that Sherman's men encountered. And her book has the language of 21st, early 21st century historical discourse. Uh, she talks about gendered spaces. She talks about privilege. She talks about uh, hierarchy and hegemony and, and a lot of concepts one encounters in graduate school that don't appear when ordinary people are talking about anything, but, but historians uh, use them among themselves. This book really looks at these four women as individuals, not as parts of structures. There, there's not much about uh, the structure of society, the relations of men and women, the, the role of gender. Uh, to an extent, you, I mean, you, you touch on it, you, you point out, as, as we discussed a little bit earlier tonight, that, that there are specific roles for women to play, but that's not the focus. You really look at these people as individual people, uh, in a sense, a throwback to the great man theory of history. This is the, the great woman theory of history. Well, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I of course, did a great deal of reading in gender studies. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and when I was trying to figure out how to get these women's stories across, I realized that I needed to save that. Um, and there are extensive footnotes. Uh, where people can look at all of the, 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 the great historians who have written um, about gender and societal structures and everything. Mm -hmm. But I felt these women, I did not feel that they had had their time in the spotlight as individuals. Although some, there are some biographies of Jesse Fremont, there are some biographies even of Ellen Sherman, and there are some uh, well, they're Julia's memoirs, not really a, a full biography, but she, there are major parts of books about Julia Grant, nothing about Nellie, as I mentioned. And I simply felt that they needed, each of them needed their time in the spotlight. And so as I wrote the book, I call it a sort of a layered biography, because as I begin with Jesse, then go into Nellie, then I can compare and contrast, and then to, to Ellen, compare and contrast and to Julia, and then in the conclusion, really, that's where I sort of look up and, and, and try to talk about how they, um, how they interacted and, and give a, a broader overview. But I did want this to be um, their time in the spotlight. And, well, they're, they're certainly, they, they fill the spotlight. They're very interesting characters, uh, uh, the, your your characterization of, of Nellie McClellan as an enabler of McClellan's delusions about his own ability or his own activities is, is very persuasive. Uh, I just mentioned uh, uh, Lisa Frank's book on Southern Civilians and Sherman's March, where she points out, gives many, many examples of how virulent the Southern women were in their Confederate patriotism and in their hatred of the Yankees and everything they stand for. After reading that book, it was sort of refreshing to read uh, uh, to read Ellen Sherman's commentary. She had no use for 
anyone who would betray the country for uh, for Confederates and slaveholders. And her language is much stronger than that of the, the arch-fiend uh, William Sherman. Absolutely. I found that to be just uh, amazing. I, I, uh, Ellen was the real surprise of all of these women to me. Um, because she also was written about either as, you know, this Catholic zealot who spent all of her time trying to get her husband to convert to Catholicism, um, or her, her a daddy's girl that was always running back home to Lancaster, Ohio, to be with her parents. Um, but, in fact, what I found, particularly during the war years, was that she saw the big picture. She saw the war for the Union as something that was bigger than anything else at the time, um, bigger than any of the people. Um, and, and she was utterly opposed to the Confederates and particularly Catholic slaveholders. Um, so, and she was, you say she was Catholic, she tried... Uh really her whole life to get uh, William Sherman to convert uh, and, and to convert her father for that matter but she it's worth remembering and, and, and listeners know this that, that Catholicism did not play did not hold the status it has today as a uh, as an I'll call it acceptable religion um, uh, nobody today would say let's not allow any Catholics into the country uh, but plenty of people would say that in the 1850s. Uh, Absolutely. In fact, she was for Lincoln before anybody in her family was. Of course, she didn't have a vote. But she was also from a very distinguished family. Her father, Thomas Ewing, was a, a very um, distinguished man. And um, But she, she came out for Lincoln when Lincoln disavowed the Know Nothing Party anti-immigrant, anti-Catholicism, um, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. policies. And right. and that made her a Lincoln woman from the beginning. Um, and and to, to my mind, that was something that, that I had to try to learn more about. And I spent a lot of time, and I ended up going out to, to the University of Notre Dame and talking with um, the head of their... Uh, Kushwa Center for the Study of Catholicism in America to better understand the role of Catholics and the, the, the societal impact um, uh, against Catholics during that time. The other thing that distinguishes uh, uh, Ellen Sherman and Julia Grant in a different fashion is that their support of their husbands is, is in one sense unconditional, but it's not... Um, it's not blind. Uh, Mrs. Sherman frequently tells General Sherman when he's wrong, and, and that's very different. Very different from either either uh, Jesse Fremont or Delia McCollin. In all the correspondence that I could find from the with, between the Fremonts and between the McClellans, I never saw any indication of the women taking issue with anything their husbands did. Um, that is different with both the Shermans and the Grants. These were women that had their own opinions and that stood up and even gave their husbands military advice 
um, sometimes. Julia was was often interesting in that. But, but Ellen's was when Sherman wanted to leave the Army, she said, no, you cannot do that. That would be desertion. You have to stay in the Army. She, she was very fierce about the sense of duty that was owed to the nation. Let me backtrack a minute to uh, Nellie McClellan. You point out she never contradicted her husband, or, or in, in the there's no evidence that you came across or she ever contradicted him. But as you you argue that she also did him the struck him the worst blow of anyone historically by allowing all of his letters to her to be published after his death. Uh, was this was she not conscious that they would reveal what a uh, how delusional McClellan was or did she think she was doing him a favor in terms of his historical reputation well you know we'll really never know um, what was in her mind but during the war McClellan had urged her not to let other people know what they thought and not to let their correspondence be, you know, uh, read or seen by other people. So he knew, he knew that he uh, was saying things that were at best intemperate, Mm -hmm. and he was warning her against it. And yet, um, after he died, um, she allowed, enabled his uh, correspondence with her to be copied and, and, and published in a book that purported to be McClellan's memoirs, but were not. They were written by his by his literary executor. The thing we don't know is whether she said, yes, take it all, or whether she said, just, I don't even want to think about it. I don't, I, I just want to stay away from it. Either way, it has the same uh, result, and she would have known that at the time. There, 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 oh, I'd say there's almost a hint, though, of, of a passive-aggressive uh, yes. You don't say this directly, but, but where she's saying, you know, I put up with this guy for all this time. Here, world, look at what the guy he really was. Well, and that, that could be. I mean, we do know that the first time McClellan asked her to marry him, she turned him down. She mm-hmm. had been in love with his roommate at West Point, A.P. Hill. But her parents, uh, particularly her mother, um, sabotaged their engagement. We don't know whether she forever pined for A.P. Hill, um, but we know that she was asked by at least eight men to marry them, and she turned them all down until she finally ended up marrying uh, McClellan uh, at his second try when she was very nearly approaching uh, spinsterhood in the Victorian term. So she... She had her options, certainly. Let, let me just cut ahead because we're almost out of time, uh, and we barely touched on Julia Grant. Uh, in in a couple minutes, what what struck you most uh, about Mrs. Grant's story? Uh, for this book, and and I the first one I did was uh, for Julia. I I commissioned maps to be done of their travels during the Civil War. Everyone loves maps and Civil War books, and I began to see all of these references to Julia, particularly in her memoirs, about being in different places with her husband, 
And so I began just using MapQuest on my computer, um, just saying, okay, here she went from Galena to Cairo, Illinois, to St. Louis. And by the time I finished the first rough run-through, it was clear to me that she traveled more than 10,000 miles during the Civil War to be with her husband. And I think that is just astonishing. And if you look at the maps, I have a map for each woman, and you start out with Nellie, with uh, Jesse. And her map is very simple because she's just at her husband's headquarters. Nellie travels north. Ellen sort of engages. But but Julia is, it's like a, a ping-pong match. I mean, she is traveling all over, even into the south. And at one point, she and her slave who was with her, who, who traveled with her, um, were nearly captured by the uh, Confederates. Um, and, and the reason I think that she traveled so much, and I go into this in a lot of detail, is because she had an eye defect that made her, um, made it difficult, but not impossible, for her to read and write. And she didn't like to write. And it just drove Ulysses to despair when she didn't write him. And so she decided, and he decided, he decided that she should travel with him during the war as much as she could. And I think that's just an astonishing story. The, the maps are a very clever and original addition to the book, uh, treating women's travels as other writers who treat military campaigns, showing where they went. And it graphically shows the difference between Mrs. Grant uh, and certainly uh, uh, Fremont and McClellan in terms of their travels. The the, the proximity of the Grant couple, uh, you, know, you argue, had a, a strong influence on Grant. Uh, Mrs. Sherman kept kept the general afloat at the lowest times of his career. There are a lot of interesting stories in, in this and important stories that really haven't been looked at from this angle. And uh, it, it's just a, uh, a really interesting and, and eye-opening book. Uh, listeners, you will want to get yourself a copy of Lincoln's General's Wives, Four Men Who Influenced the Civil War, For Better and for Worse. Candace Hooper is the author. Uh, Candy, it's been a pleasure talking with you tonight and look forward to uh, seeing you tomorrow at the conference. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be on your show. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.